On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking to Mayor Fred Eisenberger about the news that the LRT is getting $1.7 billion worth of funding from the province, not a billion, and $1.7 billion from the federal government. At least that's what we're expecting in an announcement on Thursday, which means maybe that this project is going to happen. Will it? Well, you know, we've been down this road before, so we'll see. But it sounds like we're as close as we've ever been. The mayor will talk to us about this. We are going to be chatting about the Toronto Rock moving to Hamilton. The owner of that team, that lacrosse team, joins us to talk about that. And would you drink non-alcoholic whiskey? I mean, maybe you wouldn't drink whiskey, period. But if you do, would you drink non-alcoholic whiskey? We're going to talk about that concept, which sounds a little bit like an oxymoron, but We'll find out. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You know, we've been talking about this story for as long as I can remember. And for the longest time, I said on my epitaph, on my headstone will be etched the words, covered the LRT and was still covering the LRT. But we learned today that may not be true. We learned today that an announcement is coming Thursday that if it's what we're told it will be, It's now going to be that the provincial government is going to ante up a little more. Instead of a billion dollars, it'll be 1.7 billion. And the federal government is going to match that and give another 1.7 billion. And the LRT is going to get built. Now, at this point, some of you are cheering vigorously. Others of you are hissing at your radio. That is the Great Hamilton Divide. We know that exists. But it sounds like this is going to happen. want to bring on the mayor of the city of Hamilton, who, boy, talk about being in the middle of a debate that uh, seemed like it would never end. Uh, You know, we're on the periphery. He is right in the middle. Mayor Fred Eisenberger, thanks for the time today. Well, good to be with you, Scott. Uh, I thought that was an interesting song choice you just had there. <laughs> I, I wish I was the DJ who could be creative enough to pick them. For, uh, Mr. Mayor, what is your level of confidence that, you know, even though we're hearing this now, we've heard a lot of things in the past, what's your level of confidence that a finish line is in fact at last in sight? Well, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, you know, cl- clearly this has been quite a journey. Uh, you know, I've been advocating for this uh, LRT now for the better part of 12 years, and we've had it uh, on again, off again. I'm actually looking at a poster in my office now which says Hamilton LRT is a go. That's going back to 2015. And uh, it's been an ongoing journey. Now, I, I know I, I will compliment uh, the Premier of Ontario who, who committed to me and I think said publicly in the community that, even though they had canceled the project, he was on for getting a new deal, a new arrangement to financially uh, make this move forward, and he was going to work on that. Uh, we've had the same commitment from uh, Minister Mulroney, who uh, you know also committed to do the same. And every time I spoke to the Prime Minister about the uh, benefits of LRT, uh, he was very supportive. And uh, our own Hamilton uh, Minister of Infrastructure, uh, Catherine McKenna, uh, has been equally vocal about uh, climate change and electrifying transit systems across the country and also has been very supportive. And I'm hoping, and I, I've, I've not been able to confirm the numbers as yet, but I'm hoping that uh, together they're, they're going to bring forward a plan that um, puts the LRT uh, back on the, uh, on the track and gets us back to uh, what I think is going to be a beautiful stimulus project for the city of Hamilton. I can't think of anything that's more shovel-ready. It's been designed. It's been uh, the environmental assessment's been done. Uh, the underground uh, service work has been evaluated and, uh, and figured out. And we were 
inches away from procurement. Uh, you know, the last time it was uh, canceled by the provincial government, and I'm happy to say that they've uh, come around to understanding and appreciating the value of this investment here in the city of Hamilton. Clearly, there there were negotiations going on as we've been talking because the province, as you as we've said, has gone up from one billion to one point seven. We're told, and the federal government has jumped in with one point seven. Uh, were you involved in these negotiations, or how are these happening? No, uh, not, not at all. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I've been advocating for this project, but uh, the, the province, uh, you know, uh, you might recall a few months ago, maybe maybe five months ago, uh, said that they were uh, identifying this as a priority project and bundled it with uh, a number of other Toronto, uh, greater Toronto area uh, subway and, uh, and LRT transit projects and said that this was how they were going to approach the federal government about, uh, you know, a partnership in terms of funding all of those projects. So today they announced uh, some $12 billion of overall funding, uh, you know, $10 billion or there, thereabouts is going to Toronto for subways and other uh, major rapid transit initiatives. And uh, I anticipate on Thursday we're, we're going to hear, you know, what the level of commitment is from both the federal and provincial governments to make LRT happen in the city. I have not been involved in discussions or negotiations. They've been doing this on their own. Uh, and, uh, you know, I believe that they're going to come forward and say that, uh, you know, this is this is a project that, that, that is now happening at the right time, given we're all looking for economic stimulus. The, the, the federal government said they're, they're prepared to fund projects that have uh, uh, immediate opportunity to get going uh, because the LRT has been designed and it is virtually ready to go for procurement. I think they're, uh, they're seeing this as a great economic stimulus opportunity coming out of the pandemic and uh, couldn't happen at a better time. So, no, I've not been involved in the negotiations. Have I, have I been an advocate for LRT? Absolutely. You know, I ran uh, on LRT a number yes. of times. Last time, uh, it was, uh, you know, one candidate said no LRT. The other candidate, myself, said yes LRT. Uh, you know, certainly I came out on top, and I think I have a mandate to do that. And uh, I followed through on that. And I'm, uh, you know, pleased to hear that the province and the feds have come together to hopefully give us a real project that we can get shovels in the ground and get all of that employment, that economic stimulus happening, that uh, that renewal of, uh, of uh, residential and commercial, higher density, curbing urban sprawl, and electrifying a system in the middle of what we know is a climate change emergency where we can reduce significantly greenhouse gas emissions. So it, it, it meets all of the check boxes for both federal and provincial investment, and certainly it should meet all of the checkboxes for the city of Hamilton in terms of why this investment is valuable for our sustainable city into the future. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, Mr. Mayor, what we're hearing is $1.7 billion from the province, up from a billion that they had always said, $1.7 from the federal government. At this point, does that lead you to believe that any capital funding is going to be required from the city? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, you know, the uh, the project that I've been advocating for is based on the original arrangement that uh, that was announced in 2015. You know, short of the numbers have changed, but essentially that it was uh, a project that that really uh, reflected on the the, the the journey that the city of Hamilton has been on, with lots of lost industry, lots of lost, you know, past employment. Now diversifying our economy, and at, at the time, I convinced uh, you know Premier Wynne that this is the kind of lift 
that the city of Hamilton needs, and it should be, uh, you know, 100% paid for capital-wise from, uh, from uh, you know, the provincial government at the time, and they agreed with that. Uh, that's the same model that I put before, you know, the feds, uh, feds and province when they've asked, that, uh, you know, that, that short of, uh, you know, that, that there's no room for capital dollars to go into this project. Uh, that is not the basis of where this whole program started. Uh, it cannot be the basis of how it goes forward. And so I'm hoping that uh, it's 100% capital funding from federal and provincial governments, which it sounds like. I have not seen the numbers, but it sounds like that's what's coming forward. And that the city of Hamilton is always committed to, by, by virtue of a uh, memorandum of understanding that we signed earlier on, to, uh, to the uh, day-to-day operating and maintenance. In other words, uh, who, who runs the line, uh, cleaning the buses at night, that was always deemed to be a responsibility for the city of Hamilton to take on. And, you know, the approximate cost of that on an annualized basis would be somewhere around the $9 million mark, million dollar mark, offset by, you know, the additional taxes and revenue, the kind of additional taxes and revenue that we witnessed Kitchener-Waterloo generating for, you know, some 2 or $3 billion of additional investment, which generates much more uh, in terms of taxes, uh, taxes and revenues that far offsets the annual, uh, you know, day-to-day operating costs. So I hope that uh, that's the model that they're going to bring forward. And uh, if it is, that's the original position of the city of Hamilton. That's been the that's the position of the city of Hamilton today to uh, to ask for that kind of a system with that kind of a funding model. And if they deliver that, then they're delivering everything that uh, we've asked for, which was actually two streams. One was LRT. And the other, which we're already getting, is uh, about a half a billion dollars of traditional transit system upgrades, including a new transit, uh, traditional bus transit ter- terminal that is in our, our 10-year uh, capital plan that uh, the feds and the province have also committed to funding. So uh, we are virtually getting everything we've asked for, if, if, if all of that comes to pass the way I've described it. Does this still require, is this going to have to come back in front of council for another council vote on this? Well, that's a that's a debatable question. Uh, you know, if if it is what uh, the council originally asked for, which is a uh, an LRT with no pa- capital commitment to by, by the city of Hamilton to the development of the project, and our only uh, contribution our contribution would be the day to day operating and maintenance, then it doesn't require another vote because that's the official position of the city of Hamilton. It's never changed. Uh, but you know, that some might want a desire to create. A, a separate vote for whatever reason. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, I, I would I would like to think that given the generosity of both governments now to say yes, we're prepared to do this for the city of Hamilton it, uh, on a hundred percent funding basis. Uh, uh, you know, you've got to be crazy to turn that down. And I, you know, I I I think I have to remind people now that this is not a uh, you know let's let's look for some other model that we can fund. The federal government saying, and I think the provincial government is saying exactly the same thing, that this is uh, this is an LRT project. It's funded on an LRT project basis, and if you fail to take it, the money will go elsewhere. The, the reason, part of the reason I asked the question is because I know there have been a number of councillors who have said, and it touches on what you said a moment ago. Um, yes, we will cover the operating costs, but we still don't have a written down good budget on what the operating costs are going to be. And therefore, we can't vote on whether to accept this until we have some, some idea what we're going to pay. 
And so if well, this that, did have to not, come back to council, would they have that budget? Yeah, that, and that, that, that was always part of the process. And you, you have a separate uh, bidding process for the, op- for the day-to-day offering. That's exactly what happened in the Kitchener-Waterloo. And all members of council have been given you know, reasonably accurate estimates of what those numbers would be. Uh, you know, Kitchener-Waterloo, I believe, ended up at uh, $9 million annually. It's been a few years now, so you might anticipate that it'd be a little higher in Hamilton. But it is; it, those are reasonable numbers because it's largely offset by uh, the additional tax revenue that comes with the development of an LRT. So, you know, those that say they, they, they don't know, they do know. They've been given those estimates. Those estimates are real. They're accurate. There's lots of examples out there of, of operating, day-to-day operating costs that uh, that are functioning uh, you know throughout the country you can go to ottawa you can go to edmonton you can go to calgary uh the, the estimates are all based on the, the regular you know day-to-day operating costs that most systems have so this is not a foreign number uh it is it's hard to know you know specifically ahead of time uh you can only get an estimate because what happens is that once you've developed the lrt you actually take that out to procurement uh and, and you have a bidding process on who can you know do, do the operations at the, you know, the most effective cost. So it could actually be lower than uh, the estimate number of $9 million, which, you know, is, is possible. But that's the order of magnitude. Uh, that's a known number. Everybody's known that number. So this notion that we don't know this is, uh, is ridiculous. We, I wish we had a lot more time, but I'm reasonably sure that the mayor will be back on CHML sometime on Scott's show or Bill's show or some show before <laughs> this thing is all said and done. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thank you for the time tonight. I appreciate it. Uh, always a pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier today, some really uh, exciting news. If you're a sports fan, if you're just someone who... Uh, is interested in more things to do in our city. Exciting news. The Toronto Rock Lacrosse Club announced that it is moving back to Hamilton. Back because uh, many of you will know the history, but back because more than 20 years ago, this franchise started here as the Ontario Raiders. Then went on, moved to Toronto, was sold to Toronto, went on to have enormous success, multiple champions, huge crowds, turned lacrosse into into a big deal. I mean, it wasn't necessarily always a big big deal, but turned it into a big deal and is now returning to Hamilton. We'll be setting up shop for the next five years, at least at First Ontario Centre. And we heard today five years, and then there's an option to extend that. Let's see how things go. Jamie Dowick is the owner of the Toronto Rock. He joins us now. Jamie, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate your time tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. Um, why Hamilton and why now to move the team? Um, well, two very good questions. I mean, why Hamilton? Um, you know, to me, one of one of the big things when we started to explore our options um, was we wanted to continue to um, play in a in a larger arena where we still had the opportunity to draw. Um, you know, the big crowds that the Rock used to draw. Um, you know, way back in the day, long before my ownership. So. Um, you know, that was definitely a huge factor, um, in which led to some conversations with the people over at First Ontario Centre. But, you know, the moment we started talking to them, um, you know, it, it became, you know, clear very quickly that, uh, you know, this was seems like a match made in, in heaven for us. And, and we're very excited about it. And, 
you know, excited to be in Hamilton. You know, like you said, I mean, it was the MLL, not the NL, but like where the, where the rock started. And it's kind of like a, to me, it's kind of like a full circle thing. And, and, and I feel like, you know, it, it's the proper home for this team. Um, I think, I think it's just a much better fit for, for who we are and what we are. And, um, I'm excited about it. Well, you alluded uh, to something just a moment ago, and that is there, there's no question that this team has had enormous success in Toronto, not just on the floor, which it obviously has, um, but attendance numbers. There were there were times when, I mean, 15,000, 16,000 people was the norm. Now, they're down a bit. They're still solid numbers. No one's, you know, this is not nobody showing up. They're still very good numbers. It's not quite that, though. Has this league now, do you think, found its level? Is that where they should be? Or do you believe the potential is there that those numbers could get back up to once a, where uh, they were I, once I, upon I a time? I 100% believe in Hamilton will have an opportunity, you know, over time here to play in front of full building there. I, I really do believe that. Um, you know, the team obviously had a lot of success fan-wise in Maple Leaf Gardens, which I believe was only about a 12,000-seat arena. Um, and it was brand new. And, and then when the team moved over to Scotiabank Arena, um, you know, with the Leafs and all that, I mean, it, it was a new arena and a lot of people wanted to go see the, see, see the arena and didn't really get a chance to get to Leafs or, or, or Raptors games at that time. And, and it, it became a way to see the arena and the team was hugely successful. Um, you know, following, uh, 2005 and, and selling that building out for the championship game. You know, the team at that time, and I was just, you know, a fan out uh, at the time back then. The team kind of went in a different direction and kind of thought they could make a bunch of moves that, you know, and they could continue to win. And and they, and, they, and those moves all kind of backfired and they traded away some some of the big components, you know, number one being Colin Doyle. And, and, and the franchise paid for it. And ultimately, probably what led to the franchise being for sale when I purchased the team back in 2010. It had been going through, you know, a four-year major down cycle. You know, they were probably legitimately averaging crowds of about 7,000 at the time. And, you know, I would say half of those might have been purchased tickets. So, um, you know, we, we, we put a lot of time and effort into it. We spent five years, I think, on TSN, spent a lot of money to do that, trying to build the fan base up, back up. And, you know, I think we did okay. But ultimately, over the last five years, you know, it, it seems like eight to 10,000 is, is the most people we can get in that building. Um, and, and really, that just doesn't make financial business sense. It's, it's the busiest, the most high-profile building in our country, and 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 you know, with that, most expensive. And when you're playing, when you when you're really only filling it up to not even half the capacity, just doesn't seem to make sense. So, um, you know, I know I kind of went on there, but but that, that that's how we get to where we are. And and yeah, my goal is, you know, I kind I kind of hit the wall there with the Toronto as far as I I, I kind of had to accept that you know this is just more the norm and I guess and 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 it's either you know status quo or look at your options and back to you know which led us to Hamilton and what I believe is a, is a really good partnership with the uh, First Ontario Center. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the interesting things that I've always found about lacrosse fans about your fans 
is that the people who are into lacrosse are absolutely rabid and diehard and devoted. And yet there's an awful lot of people in this country, in this province, in this area, who, even though this is one of our two national sports, have never been to a game, may not have ever even seen a game. And we're talking just before the break about how you build those crowds back up and get the building full and do those things. It would seem those are some of the people who are ripe to be plucked and picked and brought into the arena. How do you get them to be those new lacrosse fans? You know, it's it, uh, and and a tougher thing to do in Toronto when you're fighting for, you know, media space and and everything, advertising, and when you're competing with with the Leafs and the Raptors and all those things, and you know, we, we see see our new home in Hamilton as a great opportunity, you know, to get us out there, and and we're we're, we're a team that, you know, words are words are cheap, actions speak louder than words, and. You know, we'll, we'll be in the community and we'll be out doing things and, you know, we'll, we'll be visible. And, and, you know, we got a lot of things that we do that we probably haven't done as much out that way in the past, you know, from our school programs that we run and, and uh, you know, a lot of charity work. So, you know, we look forward to getting involved in, in the community and, you know, not, not you know, being visible and, and talking to people and helping out and working with them and, and, and bringing people into the city of Hamilton for our games. And, I, you know, I think that's one thing, you know, I, I've seen it on a lesser level with our facility here in Oakville, but when we put on events out here, you know, the the, the loyal fan base that, you know, comes into the city and, and, and spends money in the economy there and, and, and does all the things, gets hotel rooms and, you know, does all the things to, to, to help support the local economy. And, and, and in this case, it's going to be Hamilton. So, um, you know, that, that's how we'll do that. We'll work with the minor programs and, and we'll just continue to um, do what we can do to spread the word because I, I agree with you. I think once you get, just got to get them there. And once you get them there, I think, you know, most people I talk to are hooked. So how do you get them there? That's the, mm-hmm. the million dollar question that we continually, you know, try and figure out. You mentioned today in the press conference um, that costs for the average fan are going to be down because they're in Hamilton. And I'm wondering if you can give an idea of what a ticket price for a Toronto rock game at first Ontario center is going to look like this fall. Yeah. Well, I mean, if if we're talking on a, on a season ticket base, um, you know, we have a, uh, a a ticket, our most expensive season ticket at the Scotiabank arena, for example, would have been $500. Um, you know, now that ticket at, at the uh, first Ontario Center goes down to four hundred and fifty dollars, and you know there's even an opportunity with a, with a new uh, the Builders Club that we've introduced today, you know, to bring that ticket price down a little more and lock in that price for the next few years. So it's you know it, it's an affordable ticket, and it, it doesn't stop there. That's just the first thing. You know, you'll see it when you pull up to the game and pay for parking and you're not paying $40 for parking. You know, you're paying 10 or 15 and at the, at the concession. I mean, the savings for the, for the fan to, to come to our game experience was the one thing that was kind of always out of whack for me at the Scotiabank Arena. You could get a ticket maybe to come watch your game for $20, but then when you went to order a beer, you were paying another $20 and you know, it, it kind of becomes unaffordable entertainment for the average person. And, and um, 
you know, I, I still think we are that. I think we're, we're, we're entertainment at an affordable cost. And, 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 you know, that, those are the things we compete with uh, for people to come and, and enjoy our, our product and take part. So, um, you know, it, it, it's going to be great. They're, they're going to see it right off the hop. And, and, uh, I'm excited about that too. So, you know, pure, pure financial savings for sure. Jamie, one of the things, and I know this is a, a bit of a controversial decision. I know you've been hearing about it. Um, the decision to keep the name Toronto Rock rather than changing it to Hamilton or Ontario or something else. Explain the the thinking behind not changing it to Hamilton. Yeah, I mean, I, listen, I'm, I'm aware of it. I know that you know you have a strong opinion about that, and a lot of people do, and and I, I respect that, and and. Um, you know the whole thing. It's just it is what it is. I, I think um, you know the reality of the situation is we're talking about 50 kilometers down a highway here, and and you know Toronto to me represents the, the greater Toronto Hamilton area as a whole, and you know it's not like a team is relocating. In, in, in an entirely other market, the, the market's still the same. The fan base is still the same. All those things are still the same. We're really relocating where we play our home games, and, and, I, and I listen. I understand the Hamiltonians are very proud and, and proud of their city and support their sports brands. And, and listen, we're gonna make. They're gonna they're gonna know we're their team, and 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 you know that might take us a little time to prove them to that and like i said earlier our, our actions will speak louder than words and and you know I, i'm confident that eventually you know they'll 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 see where we are and and i i just i feel you know there's a lot of our fans that are very hurt by this move you know the fans east of the city and you know change it, it the team hasn't changed where we play our home games has changed so um, you know, we're, we're definitely not, you know, we're, we're the Toronto, we're the rock, we're the rock, you know, like you'll, you'll hear that a lot, you know, Hamilton will become, is, has become rock city and that's a big thing for us. And believe me, we're, we're not, we're not here to throw the Toronto name in, in anyone's face or anything like that. It, it's just who this team is and who this franchise is and, and there's a lot of history there, and, and we learned to look to continue that history back in, in Hamilton. It is, uh, look, it's exciting that you guys are coming. I think an awful lot of people around here are looking forward to bringing you back to the city where this started and really hoping this works. And uh, I really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks for doing this, Jamie. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. That is Jamie Dowick, who is the owner of the Toronto Rock, who, as I say, they announced today that they are coming back to Hamilton starting this season. So if you are a lacrosse fan, this is a good day. If you're not a lacrosse fan, probably because you've never seen the game, which is the common thing that I hear all the time. And maybe this is the opportunity to, to see a professional game and who knows where it'll take you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I came across an article the other day that really caught my eye because I found it completely fascinating. And I think probably a lot of you would have stopped to read it as well. This particular article was about a California company that is making non-alcoholic whiskey, non-alcoholic whiskey. And this of course goes along with this company's non-alcoholic gin that it also makes. 
Well, that got me digging around because honestly, I'd never heard of this. I'd never heard that you could do this. I've heard of non-alcoholic beer, but there seem to be an awful lot of other things in beer that don't have to be the alcohol. So that made some sense. Well, turns out there is an entire industry out there apparently making this stuff. Fake spirits. I don't even know if you can call it. I guess you can't call it a spirit if it's got no stuff in it, no booze. But nonetheless, I was amazed that there is an entire industry out there making near whiskey, near gin, near rum, near whatever, I guess. Never heard of it. Davin Kergamo is a writer. He's a presenter. He is an expert in the field and he is the founder of the Canadian Whiskey Awards. He joins us again. We've had him on before. We loved having him. I'm glad he is back. Davin, how are you tonight? I'm just fine, Scott. How are you? Well, I, I'm, I, you know, I was puzzled when I first heard this. Have you ever tried non-alcoholic spirits, even though that seems an oxymoron? I have never tried non-alcoholic spirits, no. Um, and I just can't imagine why a spirits lover would, would do that to themselves. I've tried non-alcoholic beer which is fine, but it doesn't taste like beer. I've tried non, uh, uh, non, uh, meat, meat, like vegan meat. It tastes fine. I like it, but it doesn't taste like meat, meat. I've tried non sugar sweeteners. They're sweet, but they don't taste like sugar. And I just can't imagine how, uh, you could make, um, something taste like whiskey that didn't have alcohol in it. I'm 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 surprised in a sense that you haven't tried it, if only not to, I don't know, destroy, <laughs> to do so. I don't know. I I, I kind of thought, oh, you know, I bet Davin has tried this just to be able to say, oh, I tried it, and it, you know, whether it is or isn't, I was surprised or I wasn't surprised. Because I think Davin, I think an awful lot of people probably share your view. They just would assume this can't, this can't possibly be similar. If I was ever in a situation where I could try it, I, I'm sure that I would. I certainly would. And I would do so with an open mind. But um, I, there are a couple of things that, that puzzle me about this. There are two different kinds of flavoring chemicals in whiskey. They're called congeners. There are some that are only soluble in water, and there are some that are only soluble in alcohol. Now, these are chemicals. It doesn't matter what you put into that, into water. It, you're not going to get those chemicals to dissolve. So already you are losing some of the, uh, of the flavor of the whiskey, some of the nuances and some of the subtleties. Um, I know that this, uh, this uh, zero-alcohol whiskey, um, you know, it's, uh, they, they use, um, what is it, the monk fruit, which is the latest California craze. To, to sweeten it and maybe add a little bit of color. They do use fruit to add color to it. Um, but where they get the other flavors from, I'm not certain because they say they put they put it in a in, a, in virgin oak barrels to mature. But um, I've tried um, putting you know oak chips, for example, in vodka to soak the flavor out. It, that's not the way it works. The way that whiskey gets its flavor is from interactions with the air, with the chemicals in it. A major uh, uh, generator of whiskey flavors is a process called ethanolysis, in which ethanol, alcohol, breaks down components of the wood and also breaks down other 
chemicals that come into the to the uh, spirit from during distillation and from fermentation and from the yeast. So if you don't have yeast contributing flavor to it, I'm not sure where these flavors are going to come from. If you don't have ethanol as a skip, uh, generating flavors from the wood, you're not just going to soak them out. I mean, it's a it's a real mistake to think that whiskey soaks flavor out of the wood. There's a little bit of that, but not a whole lot. It's more chemical interactions, which are many of which are mediated entirely by alcohol. So I yeah, I, I, can't, I, I, I can't imagine. Please, please, Scott. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I, just, I can't, I don't understand, quite frankly, and I'm no expert, I mean, you are, but it, I was always under the impression that alcohol was, an, incent, was an, an essential component of the process of making whiskey, that you couldn't do it without, that, it, that, that, as you say, that made a lot of other stuff happen that led to the flavors. Well, yeah, and you're exactly right about that. I, I just can't imagine how they would do this. When I'm, I've been doing some reading about these, and they call it zero alcohol whiskey. I'm really surprised that, you know, they're, they're even allowed to put the word whiskey on the label because by definition, whiskey must contain at least 40% alcohol. If it's less than that, theoretically, I mean, but legally, you're not supposed to call it whiskey at all. I just I imagine <laughs> no one has bothered to challenge them in court. Well, well, I haven't looked at the labels, Davin, to see. Are they spelling it W-I-S-S-K-E-Y, like cheese, C-H-E-E-Z, when it's not really cheese? But we'll still call it. We'll just spell it differently so no one notices. Yeah, yeah I don't think they're going to get away with that. But it's, called, it's spelled W-H-I-S-K-E-Y. All right. The American spelling, it comes from California. That's just, you know, I don't see this, you know, problem. So, but I don't, I, I can't believe that the, uh, that the American government is going to let, get away with this. If anybody challenges them, I, I can't understand how that, that they, would, they would be able to continue to do that. But when I've been reading up about this stuff, what I read is that um, people use it, in the, all uses seem to be in cocktails. So you know, you, you know, you can make a gin cocktail, and you can't really taste the alcohol. And maybe that's what they're, what they're aiming for, something like that. But uh, you know, of course, you need alcohol to extract the oils from the juniper. But that's another thing altogether. But uh, uh, people are, are writing with us, like like Karen Newman, who's a very respected cocktail writer. You know, says that you know she's she interviewed bartenders. She wouldn't commit herself on it, but she interviewed bartenders who said that. Uh, you know, you can make this kind of a cocktail with it for people who don't want to drink alcohol, you know, and for whatever reason. And, uh, it, you know, they're, they're promoting it as, uh, you know, whiskey without the hangover. Once you turn right, you don't have the hangover. You don't have the, don't have the kick either. Um, not that people, I mean, people drink for that reason, though I'm sure some do. So to me, it's just, it, it, it's, it's not whiskey regardless of what it tastes like. And uh, after my experience with uh, with uh, artificial sugar, with, you know, artificial meat, you know, with uh, uh, various other artificial things, for example, de-alkalized beer, um, you know, they're, they're great on their own. I'm not sure why you even call this whiskey, because essentially what you've got here is, uh, you know, a juice drink, you know, like a, like a juice box, except it comes in an expensive bottle. And that's, a, that's another thing. A juice box. <laughs> you know, well, you know. Maybe you could sell it like that. Give it to kids. Here, here's your entree into the whiskey world. It's zero proof, but uh, they taste like it. Get used to it. Uh, it's probably a bad idea. I think that's the 
just an incredibly bad idea. Scott. <laughs> yeah, I take back everything I said. That was a horrible idea. <laughs> no, I don't think anybody would do that. But, you know, it, it, they sell this for the same price as whiskey. I mean, a bottle of uh, Monday uh, Zero Alcohol Whiskey, I think, sells for about $45, which is about 10 times as much as I could possibly imagine charging for it. It, I mean, see, the major cost of a bottle of whiskey is the taxes that are paid to the government. That's uh, that's more than two thirds of the cost of the bottle of whiskey. So they don't they right off the, off the bat they don't have those those expenses. They don't have those costs when they're making this. Honestly, I think I I really don't see how you could sell this even in a beautiful fancy bottle with a lovely label. It looks like it's for adults. I don't see if you could sell this for more than four or five dollars a bottle. <clears throat> you know, I, 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 I don't want to dump on this because I haven't tried it, and I, and I don't want to be mocking something that I haven't tried. And and like you mentioned a couple things, I, I have tried before the dealcoholized beer, and one of the ones that I tried tasted pretty good, and one of them was horrible. One of them tasted like nothing like it at all. You know, you mentioned the the vegan or the vegetarian meat now. Um, you know, on the other hand, that's pretty convincing. That that can taste very much. You could be fooled into thinking you're eating a meat burger if it's a really good one. So maybe there are some out there that somehow have pulled this off. My next question, though, is why? What, what would be the reason if you didn't want whiskey? If you don't like whiskey? If you don't like any? Why would you want to have fake whiskey? I don't quite understand what the industry is about. Yeah. Well. I mean, whiskey is very chic these days, and people like to be able to talk about whiskey and, you know, drink whiskey, and, you know, it's the latest thing. There, there are many people who have very good reasons not to drink alcohol at all. Perhaps they want to um, experience, you know, what their friends who are drinking uh, whiskey are experiencing. They won't. I can't believe they will with something like this, because alcohol is a big part of the experience. The, you know, the, that, that burning sensation you get in your tongue, that's alcohol interacting with the trigeminal nerve in your tongue. That's what causes that, not some spicy chemical or something like that. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I don't think that it's going to give you the same experience, but there may be people who want to stand at a party and, you know, have a drink in their hand that looks like whiskey and smells like whiskey, sort of like whiskey. And uh, there, I think that really, though, when, when I look at what people are writing about this, what people who should know are writing about this, it, it, it can make a cocktail that uh, has you know, elements of, of whiskey flavor in it. I don't see anything wrong with that, quite honestly. If people want to drink a cocktail, cocktails are fun and enjoyable, and uh, if people don't want alcohol, you know, that's fine. I mean, one of the reasons people uh, used to drink vodka was because they couldn't taste it. You know, so they could have a good drink and uh, not taste the alcohol and get uh, still get buzzed. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I haven't tasted it, and I'm speaking theoretically here, and I'm fully prepared to be proven wrong. But I uh, really can't imagine how uh, uh, this can taste anything more than sort of like whiskey. Well, and and the other part about this is, Davin, you probably, to be fair, you probably would be about the worst person to give a sample of this to because 
I mean, how, how many how many drams of whiskey have you had in your life? I mean, you're, you're someone who you know how to work your way through a proper whiskey and do a tasting and everything else. You would be the last guy that we would want to give the fake stuff to. But I wonder if I gave it to someone just Joe Blow off the street and didn't say this is fake, if they would take a sip and turn around and go, what's wrong with this? Or if they would say a little different, but yeah, it's okay. Because I, I wonder if you're not an expert, if you could be okay with this and think it's not bad. It's pretty good. It's pretty convincing. Um, I think you probably could, quite honestly. Um, it, it could just taste fine. Like, like you say, like some of, some of the fake meat, meat, like I love Beyond Beef. You can't fool me into thinking it's beef, but, you, but it does taste like another meat. You're right. And some of the nut cheeses, they don't taste like cheese to me, but they're just as good. But, um, but uh, yeah, I think you, there are people who would enjoy this. Would they enjoy knowing they paid $45 for well. essentially a large drink box? I don't know. <laughs> but, you uh, keep saying that. to keep sounding so... That's how they got to sell it in the liquor stores, is little drink box, juice boxes. Uh, and then and then drive along in the car while you're sipping on this non-alcoholic stuff. I've you know I've always thought I've never seen anybody do it with a non-alcoholic beer to drive along and like try and cue the cops into pulling you over just so you can do ha ha. But you know maybe maybe with one of these bottles. Um, before we go, why again as someone who spends a lot of time in this world and writes about this and knows what what from your perspective why do people drink whiskey? And it's a very broad question, I understand. But when you when you talk to people, why do people? Is it the taste? Is it the experience? Is it the burn or the warmth? Is it the what? What? What do you hear as the reason people drink the stuff? I think people uh, believe that whiskey says something about them that they have at least somewhat of a developed palate that they know what's good that they don't. Uh, you know, they, 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 you know, you hear the same people who like whiskey are are always trashing vodka, and of course there's some pretty good vodkas out there too. Um, I think a lot of it is the image. I don't think people just drink their first whiskey and say, my goodness, this is so fantastic, I'm gonna, I've got to have more. You know, I think people uh, really generally don't like their first few trams, just as people generally don't like their first few beers either. But, you know, it's, it's just a taste that's developed. So um, I think a lot of it is peer pressure and... Uh, just wanting to be part of something that's really kind of, uh, you know, in vogue right now. And, and to, you know, to that, to that point, um, you know, as much as we're wondering about this, I'm wondering if it can't be this, if this could not ultimately be a really good thing, if, you know, if it was, if it was at all replicable, if it was at all passable as whiskey and people are doing this in a large measure, n- not you, but people who are just, you know, doing it because because they think they're supposed to, if there could be an alternative that was not alcohol, maybe this is a good thing ultimately. Oh, I'm not saying whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. It may very well be a good thing. And let me say, if I tried this, I would try it with an open mind. And if I liked it, I would say so. Uh, uh, It doesn't have to taste like whiskey. Just like Beyond Beef doesn't have to taste like beef. I still really, really enjoy it. Um, But... uh, I, th- I think it's just fine. It does give people an alternative. There's no question. And there are people who, for very good reasons, prefer not to drink. Or maybe some of them can't drink. My, mm. my buddy, who's an alcoholic, when, when we're together, we drink fake beer. 
you know, we enjoy it because we still got the camaraderie and we still got we still talk. We don't get wild by the end of the night, but uh, it's uh, so. Yeah, I think it's a definite place for it. But trying to pass it off as whiskey, I think, is just a little bit beyond the pale. Interesting. Uh, there's lots of pe- lots of places on the web you can go and look this stuff up. There's a million, as I was doing before. Well, before I came on the show and my computer completely crashed, I was watching some <laughs> watching some <laughs> YouTube videos of people sampling these. Uh, you can watch those, and if you want to read, Davin, what's your website if people want to go and catch up with all the stuff you've been writing because you do great stuff. What's your website? The website is CanadianWhiskey.org. That's whiskey without an e. So CanadianWhiskey.org. My latest. Uh, go look. Book. Sorry. No, carry on, please. My latest book is The Definitive Guide to Canadian Distilleries. There you go. If you enjoy whiskey, and I and right now Ben, who's back at the home office, I can see him. Uh, ben is uh, Ben is a mixologist, and uh, Ben is waiting to dive through the phone here to get his hands on one of those. Uh, Davin, look, we always love having you on. Really appreciate your insight. Thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks, Scott. Talk to you again. Absolutely. Let us, uh, let us, Ben, would you, um, before we go to a break here, as I say, you are, Ben is a guy who has taken courses and dabbles in this. Would you try the non-alcoholic stuff with an open mind and be okay with it? Absolutely. That's one of the best parts about this. Now I wouldn't say I'm a mixologist per se, but I'm absolutely an enthusiast and a, an enthusiast. All right. See, I think when you say you're an alcohol enthusiast, that sounds worse than saying a mixologist. I'm experimenting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's even better than, see, an alcohol enthusiast, that can cause concerns, that line right there. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.